Welcome to Intelligence Squared Business. I'm Connor Boyle. Today, we're jumping into the Futureverse, a series by Intelligence Squared and Ytree. Guiding you through is the journalist, author, and former editorial director of BBC News, Kamal Ahmed. Here's Kamal with more. Welcome to this episode of The Futureverse, the podcast that explores the conversations, ideas and insights that are driving change and shaping our future. I'm Kamal Ahmed. In the first episode of this series, we took a close look at the history of the future. You know, we already had a sense that that there were those who tapped into the physical and the social world and we treated them as priests or as leaders within those communities. You can think about it in terms of prediction and you can think about it in terms of prophecy. If you simply could read the signs of which the planets were one of many, then you could understand the future. But there was no there was no opportunity to make anything better or to change the future. That has created hopes that we would be able to predict the future and control it. Last episode, at a live event in London, we asked a simple question. Will the world be a better place in 5, 50 and 500 years? Moonshot technologist Mo Gaudat. By most predictions, the the smartest being on planet Earth is not going to be a human anymore. Right? It's going to be a machine. Climate activist Clover Hogan. It is my generation, the climate generation, who are going to be in these seats of power. So I absolutely have hope. And the artist and sculptor Sir Anthony Gormley. We will see a flowering of serious works of art that take their place in the collective spaces of our world. The audience was made up of business leaders, policymakers, investors, and other influential figures. We asked them to vote on that key question at the start and end of the discussion. Did they think the world would be better or worse in 5, 50 and 500 years? When we began, only 38% had any hope that the world would be better in 500 years. One hour and some great conversations later, that number had risen to 58%. Now, it's not quite a scientific sample true, but I think it proves a point. Human beings have spent roughly 300,000 years focusing on the next threat, and for very good reason. It's called the the brain negativity bias. So six to seven thoughts out of every 10 thoughts in your brain are negative. And the reason is because, you know, if, if an event is negative, it can affect your survival. If a tiger is in front of you, you, you want to pay attention to the tiger, not the birds on the tree. And so the brain is tuned in to actually see that. But in the last 200 years, those direct threats have greatly receded. Our brains, though, haven't caught up with the fact that there is unlikely to be a hungry tiger around the corner, which means we're probably on high alert too much of the time, ready to react to the negative in case it hurts us. But actually, when we stop, talk, face our challenges and share ideas, we tune into something much more positive and reassuring. So in this episode, we are bringing you four short stories to help you do just that. Now, we aren't trying to sugarcoat it. Yes, the future can look like a very scary place. Climate change is upon us, and we're in the throes of huge technological change without a clear idea of where we're going to land. 
we are bombarded by news of all the risks we face. But humans are creatures of collaboration and ingenuity. There are people out there right now de-risking the future, engaging with our problems head on and working to make the future a safer, better place than the one a lot of us have in our minds. You're about to hear from some of them. What do you think of when you hear the word cyborg? Now, for someone of my age, it's got to be the Terminator. A terrifying, unkillable robot with red eyes on a mission to terminate humanity. But the guest you are about to hear from points us in a different direction and looks at a different type of future. Here's Kevin Warwick, Emeritus Professor of Cybernetics at Coventry and Reading Universities, who's been described as the world's first cyborg. They called me Captain Cyborg in the Register electronic newspaper for a little bit of fun, I think, originally, but it seems to have stuck. It's, it's sort of given quite an international appeal. I am Captain Cyborg, so thank you, Register, for uh, giving me that title. I have had two implants, um, and hence a cyborg is a cybernetic organism. This is somebody who's part human, part machines. The, the first one, um, which I'm, I, I, I'm sort of holding one in my hand at the moment, is what's called a, a radio frequency identification device. Um, it's only about one inch long, two and a half centimeters long. Half of it is a coil of wire. That's how it gets its power. It doesn't have any battery. And this, this was implanted in me way back in 1998 by my GP. And it, it was there for a few weeks. And what it did was identify me to the computer in my building. So as I moved around the building, we got it all set up. Um, the, the, the coil in the, the implant was energized and it, it then sent a coded message back to the computer. So the computer knew where I was at different points and it did things for me. It switched on lights, it opened doors. When I came through the front door, it said, hello, Professor Warwick, which was a bit embarrassing at times. The second implant, much more cyborgy or cyborg-esque, whatever the word is, where I had 100 electrodes fired into the nervous system in my left arm. And for just over three months, my nervous system was hooked up to a computer and some, sometimes onto the internet. We did a whole bunch of really exciting scientific experiments. It was great fun, most of which succeeded. I think one of the most exciting things um, was with, with my wife. She had electrodes pushed into her nervous system as well, and we linked our nervous systems together. So every time she closed her hand, my brain received a pulse. It was like a, a tele, very simple telegraphic communication, you know, the old dots and dashes and things like that. So she did dink, dink, dink with her hand, closed her hand three times, and I was getting three pulses. And back the other way, for her, it was a, a quick setup. So if I closed my hand, as she described it, she felt a, a electricity shooting up her finger. So it was a little bit different feeling for her. But for me, it was a... You know, my brain had learned, it took several weeks to learn to recognize the pulses, but it recognized the pulses. So what we were doing was communicating nervous system to nervous system, which of course, when you then do that, not just nervous system, but brain to brain, 
you're starting to communicate by by thought. So I, I think in the future we could well be upgraded into cyborgs communicating brain to brain just by thought. We're very limited. So as I say, maybe I, I'm pushing it a bit much, but I say we are puny in that we could do a lot, lot more. When you think of all the thoughts and feelings and colours, uh, imaginations that we have in our brains, and if we want to communicate those to somebody else, we convert them into these pretty pathetic pressure waves, mechanical signals. That's how we communicate, which bear hardly any resemblance to the original thoughts that were going on in our brains. So the, the possibility of hooking brains together that, that gives us all sorts of opportunities, just looking at the communication side of things. But there's loads more. Another example is in terms of how we sense the world. We, we sense the world in a very limited way. As a human, we miss out 95% or more on what's going on around us. We don't sense the world, for example, in infrared, in ultrasonics, in ultraviolet, and so it goes on. But I have experienced ultrasonics. That was one part of the cyborg experiment we did. Um, because of the link into my nervous system, we hooked up with ultrasonic sensors, a bit like a bat's sense. So every time an object came close to me, my brain was receiving bing, 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 pulses of electric current. So I could tell pretty accurately how close there was an object away to me. So I had had a bad sense, just to show that our brains can adapt, we can learn, and so we can take on other senses as long as our brains can put them in context. I, I think um, with any new scientific uh, experiments, you have a, a good side and a bad side. You have lots of different sides. It, it's just different, really. It's looking into a different future. Unfortunately, science fiction tends to concentrate on the more negative side of things. And you have to admit, or I have to admit, with the sort of implants that I've been working with, researching with, experimenting with, including on myself, there are potential negatives. You're opening up your nervous system. For, for example, I went to the US, to Columbia University, and we plugged my nervous system into the internet as part of the experiment and hooked up to a robot hand back in the UK, in Reddit University. So when I moved my hat in Colombia, in America, my brain signals were transmitted across the internet and out onto a robot hand. So my brain signals were operating a third hand, a robot hand. And when the hand gripped an object, signals were sent back across the internet to stimulate my nervous system. So eventually my brain was receiving pulses so I could detect how much force the robot Howell was applying on another continent. So it opens up a whole different way of operating in the world. And my body was where the network went. It wasn't limited to where I am. Now, okay, you can look at that in, well, that's a bit scary. I have your body all over the network. And you know, where does one body end and where does another body? What if you link them together? Lots of interesting scientific questions. For me, I am an optimist and I can see how we can use technology like this to help all sorts of people therapeutically. I'm, I'm working with surgeons, uh, John Radcliffe in Oxford, amongst others, on new versions of 
the Parkinson's disease stimulator. It's not, it doesn't just work for Parkinson's disease, it works for epilepsy, Tourette's syndrome, clinical depression as well. The, the brain is electrochemical. Normally, medical treatment is on the chemical pharmaceutical side, but this is looking at the electronic side and the way you can be much more specific. You don't have to have the, the same side effects. And the surgeons are becoming very, very skilled at um, placing the the stimulators and in terms of what electric currents to operate, which are, which are safe, which are the ones to go with, and so on and so forth. So they become very skilled as the, the technology improves. And, but AI can predict when to switch the stimulators on and, and when to switch them off again. So it means you can save the, the battery. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't have to be on all the time. Um, and so prediction is being used, but also classifying. AI is being used to classify, say, well, is this type of Parkinson's disease or that type is giving us much more information on the, the not just the treatment, but in terms of the what's what's wrong in the first place. With the Parkinson's disease, deep brain stimulators that are available now, many people benefit from, you don't get people hacking into them and, and causing trouble. It just doesn't happen. Maybe we could upgrade humans into cyborgs or you know part human part machine if you can't beat them join them so we link with the ai and use it to improve humans that that that's really the only solution if, if we don't do that if we just stay as humans and develop more and more intelligent machines then the conclusion's obvious i i really believe we're going to be communicating just by syncing to each other in the future for me it's tremendously exciting it's a, like a dawning of a new age uh, of communication. Now, I'm not very good at this, but I know that when you make a major purchase, say, a television, you should do your research, go on the internet, read reviews, check the technical specifications and compare prices. You should be sure, surely, you are getting the best possible value for the money you are spending. Now, how about when you are giving to charity? Maybe we don't think in those terms. But my next guest is part of a group of people known as effective altruists. Experts who use data and analysis to work out how to do the most good. Holden Konofsky co-founded GiveWell, which helps people do just that. Work out how they can donate to charity to benefit the greatest number of people or have the greatest impact. He is also co-chief executive of Open Philanthropy which aims to give as effectively as possible and share their findings openly so that anyone can build on their work. The twist? They're wholly focused on the long term. How can we improve the most lives in the future rather than now? My professional role has increasingly been to aggressively seek out ways to do an enormous amount of good uh, that aren't already being done. And so I look for things that... Uh, are important, but also neglected um, and also tractable, such that there's something we can do about them. And so I, you know, I have become a person who's kind of a, a professional finder of underrecognized, extremely important ideas, and 
I did come to believe from, you know, talking to people in the effective altruist community, which is a, a community that's kind of grown up around the same time, thinking about how to do as much good as possible. I did come to believe that there are some enormous risks and X factors for humanity's future that could be coming on us uh, in our lifetimes or this century. And that if we could do something to make, to reduce some of the worst risks humanity might face or to make things go better for the long run future, um, if you're looking to help the most people for the least money, that's a strong contender for how to do it. And what are some of those risks and over what time frame? You say this could happen in our lifetime and what type of things are you, are you talking about here? One of them is the risk of pandemics that are not natural, but instead engineered. Um, so as biology advances, uh, it will become possible to kind of custom design a pandemic that could be much worse than anything we've seen naturally, including COVID. Um, COVID obviously is a huge global event. And if you imagine something that's much worse than that, you're starting to look at something with civilizational collapse potential. Um, and then the issue that I'm currently most focused on is advanced artificial intelligence. And so this one gets a little bit, uh, you know, I think is, is more unfamiliar and takes more explaining. Uh, but the basic concept is that if we developed a sufficiently advanced artificial intelligence that could sort of automate a lot of the scientific discovery and research and development that humans do, that could lead to a huge acceleration in the rate of technological advancement um, and could basically lead to just everything moving faster um, than, we, than we would normally imagine things moving. And so a lot of times people will talk about wacky sci-fi futures we might live in and imagine that those futures might be a thousand years from now or hundreds of years from now. But if AI accelerated the rate of progress fast enough, uh, it could be that decades from now, we end up in a world that most people picture thousands of years from now. And so I think that becomes, if you take that seriously, just a way in which the nature of the world might change very dramatically, very permanently, and very quickly, such that if we haven't thought about it at all before it happens, we may not be ready for it. Now, Holden, each of those sounds like, in the way you describe them, an existential threat. Sure. Um, historically, I think philanthropy has often had a lot of success sort of building up a field or taking the first steps on some sort of research or activity that is not necessarily super mainstream and is not a major focus of governments at the time. And so that's part of why I tend to focus on issues that are not already considered the world's top priority by most people. Um, you know, if you look historically at philanthropy's history, they were funding birth controls, a feminist philanthropist funding the development of the common oral contraceptive, the pill, at a time when that was very controversial. And that wasn't the kind of thing that the government was going to be throwing its support behind. And so I think philanthropy had a lot of impact. Catherine McCormick, the philanthropist, had a lot of impact uh, by supporting some like early stage research that made it possible to develop the pill and I think change a lot of lives for the better. Looking at things that other people aren't looking at, you can get the ball rolling, you can fund the early research, you can fund the people who are interested in this topic who need support and build a field and build momentum so that, uh, so that the world makes more progress. And which projects are you therefore involved in to help those much more positive aspects that you, you describe around AI? What type of projects are you actually looking at? How can philanthropy actually work here? 
Sure. Open philanthropy uh, funds a variety of things aimed at improving the future for AI. Uh, some examples of what we do, we fund a lot of work on what we call AI alignment research. Um, that would be basically people trying to understand how you could train an AI system that ends up being sort of able to do a lot of things and see a lot of things and understand a lot of things that humans can't and yet is behaving as it's supposed to behave and not developing its own goals that make it want to manipulate or disempower humanity. Um, that's a technical problem. You can, you can uh, do experiments, you can do theory. Um, I'm happy to go a little bit more into some of the details of what those researchers do if you're interested. But we do fund a lot of research along those lines. Um, we will also fund groups that try to give good advice to policymakers and others about what kinds of policies um, would be uh, just productive for, you know, for dealing with AI. And I think just oftentimes how we should be relating to other countries' efforts, um, whether, you know, what we should be doing perhaps to, you know, to regulate uh, AI at home. So, you know, that's some of the stuff we do. And then we, we do sometimes also fund just the growth of the community of people who are focused on these risks. And I think a lot of the history of philanthropy says that, that one, of, one of your big interventions is to find people who have similar goals, who care about issues that are neglected at the time, um, and try and make it easier for those people to have careers where they get to focus on the things they care about um, and make it more possible over time uh, for people to be able to like have a normal career track while working on a very important problem that's currently neglected. So I think, you know, right now, certainly five years ago, I mean, I think if you said, oh, I want to spend my life thinking about how to make AI systems more beneficial for humanity, the career track for that was like pretty unclear. And today I think it's more clear. So Holden, if we're not in the possibly fortunate or maybe unfortunate, I don't know, position of billions of pounds to give away or huge amounts of money to give away, what can... What can we do, the, the people who don't have access to that kind of funding? Can we do things that also help in the giving away category, that philanthropy uh, category? I think so. I think the answer is kind of different for everyone. I mean, I think there's, um, in addition to giving money, there's also just making career choices uh, is, I think, an interesting way of having an impact with your life. I mean, I'm not a rich person. I'm a person who's made career choices to help others give away money effectively and there's a lot of, um, you know, there's, I think there's a lot of important work to be done that can be done in the context of a job uh, that is, you know, advo advocating for people to pay more attention to key risks or doing technical work on things like the AI alignment problem or developing medical countermeasures or clean energy sources. Um, so I, you know, I think there's a, there's a wide range of possibilities. There's a lot of activities going on that people can contribute to uh, by being an employee or by being a volunteer, perhaps in some cases, um, or sometimes, you know, individual organizations might take individual donations. So, you know, I can't, I can't give a comprehensive formula for what everyone can do. Uh, I can generally say that if you, if you kind of Google effective altruism, um, that is a community uh, that, that will often try to provide resources for people to meet each other, think about how they can make the biggest contribution to the biggest problems the world is facing, given themselves and their situation and what they have to offer, because for everyone, it's different. Now, you probably don't spend a great deal of time thinking about space weather. It's not quite as digestible as the forecast at the end of the news. But 
our infrastructure on Earth has come to depend on satellite technology. And that relies on knowing what is going on above the atmosphere. A storm taking place in the sun blasts out harmful radiation that could knock out our communication systems, navigation systems, even the power grid. Enter ESA Vigil, the European Space Agency's latest mission to monitor our unpredictable sun and protect vital systems here on Earth. Here is UC Luntama, Head of Space Weather at the European Space Agency, to tell you more. In 1859, there was a huge solar event. As a result of that solar storm, the aurora was visible in Cuba. Aurora was so bright that people during the night were reading newspapers in the light of the aurora. And the telegraph systems caught fire because the wires of the telegraph were red hot and they were igniting fires in the telegraph offices. So you can imagine what would happen to our current infrastructure, which is based on microelectronics, uh, sensitive devices and satellite systems, if we would have such an event again uh, impacting the Earth. It easily slips into a physics lecture, so I try to avoid that. Basically what happens is that the magnetic field locally in the sun breaks and there is so much energy stored into the magnetic field that when it breaks, it releases as much energy as we use on Earth uh, in a whole year, in one go. If we are in the wrong place at the wrong time, then this plasma cloud hits our magnetic field uh, and then triggers all these impacts. A space weather proof society was Victorian England. Steam machines don't care about space weather. We have built a system which is very powerful, very efficient, but at the same time, we have made ourselves much more vulnerable to space weather. Uh, if we would be caught by surprise, we expect that uh, a large part of the satellite systems that we have in space for communication, uh, for observing, observing the environment, for monitoring the weather, uh, and especially these days providing us the navigation signals that we use uh, to move from one place to another. These systems would basically become unavailable for days to weeks in time. If we also take into account that these events can damage our power grid, uh, it could be months without power. Things like increased mortality in the cities in the case of a um, blackout. There is a lot of statistics of that because there are so many other reasons for blackouts. So we know uh, what happens, but we don't know if we have a continent-wide blackout. We know a few impacts, but what would happen to banking? Because of these timing signals would disappear, uh, how many systems have a backup clock? Would those backup clocks work? Or would the synchronization be lost? What would happen to internet? I mean, those same timing signals are used in the internet as well. We did the study uh, in 2016 where we estimated that the big solar event would cause uh, in Europe uh, economic damage of 15 billion euros. In 20 years time in the future, that damage would be over 30 billion euros. So it would more than double. And we did not take, for example, the autonomous transport into account yet. Launch sequence active. ESA Vigil is a um, space weather 
monitoring mission, uh, one of the uh, new generation of uh, operational space weather monitoring capability that we are implementing in Europe. So Vigil is a spacecraft that will be launched to uh, what is called the fifth Lagrange point. So from this point, we can see the sun in a different way that uh, we see it from the Earth. What we can do with Vigil is to detect when something is happening. What we would really like to be able to do is to forecast. That would give us more time to prepare ourselves. The main thing is uh, what you do when there is a storm warning uh, from the uh, local uh, meteorological office. You close the windows, you check that your laundry is inside, uh, you check that your car windows are closed and you prepare yourself. And this is exactly what we do with space weather as well. So basically you build margin everywhere so that when there is an impact, you have more tolerance, so your systems are less vulnerable. And then finally, you make sure that the people who, who can handle any incidents are available. The preparation of such a deep space uh, mission uh, takes time. Our target is to launch the mission in 2028. And then it still takes for the spacecraft uh, more than four years to reach uh, this uh, fifth Lagrange point, which is the uh, final location of the spacecraft. So it's a, it's a long-term project, but then it will provide us uh, the uh, information for many years to come. Our next story is from someone at the coal face of well, giving us an alternative to coal. Maintaining our lifestyle requires huge amounts of energy, but we know that the majority of our current methods for generating and supplying energy are causing incredible damage to our planet. Fossil fuels are not the future, and the world badly needs cleaner energy sources. This is where nuclear fusion comes in. Advances in science and technology are giving us hope that we will be able to recreate the processes that happens when stars like the Sun create energy. It could be the most promising option we have for no carbon electricity for hundreds of years to come. To produce energy from fusion here on Earth, a combination of hydrogen gases, deuterium and tritium, are heated to very high temperatures and we're talking over 100 million degrees Celsius. The gas at those astonishing temperatures becomes a plasma, and the nuclei combine to form a helium nucleus and a neutron, and that reaction produces fusion energy. One way to control the intensely hot plasma is to use a powerful magnetic device known as a tokamak, a magnetic chamber shaped like a ring donut. Here's Sibylla Gunter, scientific director of the Max Planck Institute for Physics and closely involved in ITER, the key experimental step between today's fusion research machines and tomorrow's fusion power plants. Fusion is very exciting because it, is, uh, it doesn't need much fuel. We don't have any CO2 emissions while running the device. So in that sense, it would be a very nice, clean energy source. The ITER project is an international project. It has been started in the Cold War times when Regner Gorbachev announced they wanted to collaborate on fusion research. And it is uh, the first tokamak 
that will, for the very first time, generate more power, more energy than you need to heat up the plasma to 100 million degrees. At the moment, we have nuclear power not based on fusion, but based on fission, which is the splitting of atoms. Why not just stick with fission? We have a system that works, that produces energy. Why not just stick with that and not worry about fusion, which is very, very complicated to do? We have many two advantages. The safety properties are much better. So so if, if the fusion uh, energy power plant would not be able to destroy its surroundings, wouldn't even have enough energy to destroy itself. And second, the product of our reaction is helium, not radioactive nuclei. And so we don't have to manage this long-lasting radioactive waste either. What is the timescale for actually being able to commercially produce fusion energy? The UK says we want to be ready by 2040. The EU says 55. We're, at, we're still at the foothills, aren't we, of, of actually being able to provide deliverable energy that is useful. Exactly. We still need more energy to heat up our plasma than we get out. So this is certainly not what we want. Let's talk about, obviously, this is a climate is a global issue. I mean, to state the blindingly obvious, are we getting enough cooperation between governments on fusion rather than governments quickly rushing for the more obvious uh, places to invest, such as fossil fuel? So we have, we have seven partners and one is EU. And then we have uh, US, Japan, Korea, Russia, India and China. Indeed, we could even do more, but, but there, there the, the collaboration works actually quite nicely. In the ITER project, all countries have the right to learn every technology and get access to all knowledge. So then after you have successfully uh, built ITER, you have knowledge about the technologies and can do your power plant in your own country. Give us your view, Sabila, of where you hope we will get to, let's say, 50 years, where will fusion be for us? In, in 50 years, I'm, I'm very hopeful that um, if the investments will be done that are needed, that we will have several uh, power plants around the world, that we have already the second generation to optimize, and that fusion will be a major part of the energy system. It could be enough scale to replace all fossil fuel production, and that would help us solve the climate crisis. Certainly, if, if it just works out, certainly it would. Not within 50 years, but on the longer scale, let's see, 100 years, yes. These stories are a reminder to me, and I hope to you, that the future really is in our hands. Time may be to think a little more about the beauty of the birds in the trees. Visit y-tree.com forward slash futureverse to find out more. Join us again soon for another journey into the futureverse when we explore something we're calling the value revolution. What matters to us is changing and so is the way we measure, accumulate and distribute value. It can help you see the world differently. Thanks for listening. The Futureverse is powered by Ytree. In the future, wealth will be defined by how you live, not what you have. 
To truly understand and gain control of your complex financial life, you need transparency, efficiency, and understanding. Ytree is in the business of financial life intelligence. Combining data, experience, and technology, Ytree provides insight across all aspects of clients' financial profile.